0: If you don't have your Bible, you can pull one out of the seat back in front of you and open up to page 860. Now, so we're at 2 Peter 1. About the time that I was to preach my last farewell sermon at our former church, someone gave me a cartoon. And I couldn't find a picture of it, but it showed um, a pastor standing at the pulpit saying, Today I want to say some things to you that I've been wanting to say for a long time. And then you look out the window and there's a loaded moving van in the parking lot. (laughs) What does one say in a farewell sermon? This isn't my farewell sermon. (laughs) But when it's your last shot to impart what's of most importance to your congregation, what do you say? Well, in today's text we find the Apostle Peter in this exact situation. Most interpreters of Second Peter agree that verses 3 to 11 of Second Peter 1 is a farewell sermon. They say this for a couple reasons. One is that if you look down at verses 13 and 14, Peter says there that he wanted to remind his readers of what he had just said because he knows he's going to be dying soon. The second reason they say this is that verses 3 to 11 follow a classic pattern of a farewell servant evidently back then these sermons had a standard three-point form the first point was that god in his grace had done certain things for you the second point was that you should live good lives as a result and the third point was that this is all the more important because the end is coming and what we do in this life has eternal consequences and these are the exact three points that we find in Peter's short sermon here in verses 3 to 11. Verses 3 to 4 are about what God has done and His grace for us. Verses 5 to 10 are about how we should live. And verse 11 is about our eternal destiny. And so scholars conclude Peter opens his final letter, Second Peter, with a short farewell sermon. Obviously he wasn't there to give it to them in person, and so he included it in his letter. So what does Peter say? In this farewell sermon, what message does he leave his congregation with on his last parting shot? Well, the heart of it is his second point in verses 5 to 10. Some of you are probably very familiar with these famous and precious words. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. This linking that Peter does of faith to goodness and goodness to knowledge, etc., was a common technique in Peter's day. It's called a ladder of virtues. Philosophers and teachers would use this technique to urge their students to add virtue to virtue to virtue as if you were climbing up a moral ladder rung by rung. Reaching step by step for the heavenly heights of a righteous, godly life. As good as an image, or as good of an image as that is, though, I think I've come up with a more compelling one for us here this morning that of a football game. (laughs) So I'm going to invite you to think football with me this morning, and my apologies to those of you who are not football fans. But after all, it's fall, it's football season, a a number of people in this room are rooting for the New York Giants to get their way back to the top of the NFC East. So instead of climbing a ladder of virtue rung by rung, let's picture a football team pushing down the field of virtue, yard by yard, first down by first down. But before we get ahead of ourselves to point two of Peter's sermon, Let's go back and hear point one. Peter begins in verse 3 with good news. God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has already graciously given us all that we need to score a touchdown and to win the game. God's grace, God's gifts, and, and God's deeds for us always Proceed and overshadow anything that we might do for God. Let's take time to dwell on this wonderful fact. Let's walk through the key phrases about God's grace that Peter uses in verses 3 and 4. Ready? His first phrase in verse 3 is divine power, God power. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then God has already infused incredible power into you. Power to transform you and to make your spiritual growth possible. The author and writer and one-time atheist Lee Strobel tells the story about how his daughter Allison was five years old when Strobel started following Jesus. And all little Allison had known for her first five years was a dad who was profane and angry. sobel remembers coming home one night when Alison was young and, and kicking a hole in the living room wall just out of anger about life. He says he's ashamed to think of the times that when he'd come home, Alison would run and hide in her room just to get away from him and his anger. He continues though that, that five months after He gave his life to Jesus Christ. That little girl went to his wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy at age five. That's how much God's power had transformed Strobel's life in those first five months after he gave his life to Jesus. A lot of us could tell similar stories, couldn't we, about God's power? Maybe not as dramatic, but just as real nonetheless. Let's never forget His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Second, notice the phrase given us. Literally, the Greek word is bestowed upon us. It has an, an official air about it, a royal air. Like when the Queen of England bestowed knighthood on Sir Paul McCartney several years ago. Or when a king grants, bestows A castle or a large holding of land to a noble. The divine heavenly king, our father, has royally and officially bestowed upon us everything we need for life and godliness. Wow. Everything we need, that's our next phrase like a rich football owner who has enough capital to pull out all the stops for his franchise, to give them the best of the best, to recruit the best talent, to provide the best coaching, the best facilities, the best equipment, the best training. But for a football team, it takes more than all that to win, doesn't it? It takes determination, it takes discipline, it takes strength and speed and skill And an owner can't provide those things for his team no matter how rich he is. But the amazing thing about God's power is that God can and has given us everything we need. God has given us even those intangibles that money can't buy. He's given us hope. He's given us inner strength to overcome. He's given us a new heart and a new spirit the moral strength to excel and to grow. In his great power, God has bestowed upon us everything we need for life and godliness. Where? Where do we find these things? Where is the equipment locker where these winning resources are kept? Well, our next phrase tells us, through the knowledge of him, The hymn here probably refers to Jesus. When we know Jesus, we find in him everything we need. We need look no further. It's all found in knowing him. You know, I grew up in a Christian family, and for years my parents encouraged me to entrust my life to Jesus, but I, I kept putting it off. Do you know why I kept putting it off? Because I knew that Jesus demanded all of me. And I didn't think that I could be that committed. But when I finally did give my life to Jesus in college, do you know what I discovered? I discovered that I didn't have to wait so long. I could have come to Jesus sooner because as soon as I came to him, he gave me everything I needed to become committed. Even a new heart that wanted to. When we know Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. The next phrase for us to notice is the phrase, called us. Greg Howe reminded us a couple weeks ago of what it's like as a kid to stand there at recess or in gym class when they pick teams. And as Greg put it, you always hope you're picked before the kid on the crutches, right? (laughs) Well, Peter speaks into that situation with more good news for us. In the game that really matters, he tells us that Jesus has already picked us for his team. He's called us. He said, hey Dick, hey Robert, hey Liz, hey Dylan, hey Mark, hey Arthur, hey Mickey, Come, please, be on my team. I want you to play with me. Yay! (sighs) Last phrase. Very great and precious promises. Wouldn't it be nice to go out on the field knowing ahead of time that if you tried your very best, you would win the game? Some of us as fans might have a lot less stress if we knew how the game was going to end. Well, Jesus has given us that kind of promise. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. I am the good shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We could go on, promise after promise that Jesus has given, very great and precious promise after very great and precious promise. But let's instead look at how Peter sums up what all these promises are about at the end of verse 4. Peter says that through them, that is through these promises, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. I think Peter is saying Jesus has promised that through him you will participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. Now, what does this mean? Well, here's an image on the screen to get us started. Peter is talking in either or black and white categories. On the one hand, we have the corruption of the world. The Greek word translated corruption here can refer to both physical corruption and moral and spiritual corruption food spoils uh, cars rust houses buildings crumble our bodies grow old and deteriorate everything generally runs down toward decay but this is true spiritually as well our our evil desires pull us away from god running with the wrong crowd can can sway us to compromise our convictions Apart from God, this world tends to corruption both physically and morally and spiritually. I mean, just look at America. We can see it happening before our eyes, can't we? But Peter says Jesus has promised to rescue us from this corruption, to bring us out of this this first category, and to bring us into the second where we participate in the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? The divine nature. Well, it doesn't mean we become gods or that we we are swallowed up into God. Rather, it recognizes that the divine nature, God's nature, is just the opposite of the world which is prone to corruption. God doesn't deteriorate or run down. God's character can't be corrupted by evil. So to share in God's nature is to become like God, to share these qualities, to become more solid, more substantive, more grounded, more enduring, to live without fear of corruption. I mean, sure, our bodies will run down and die, but this is only a temporary setback because God is going to raise them again incorruptible. And while our evil desires may tempt us to sin, God has given us a new nature enlivened by the Spirit, and so we're growing to become more like Him, less corrupt, more good, more holy, more beautiful inside. This is good news. What wonderful promises. Is anyone else getting cold? No? I'm the only one who's cold up here. Okay, we don't need to... Oh, you're cold? Okay, maybe we can turn up the heat a little bit. Preach it, preach it. <laughs> all right, I'll turn up the heat. <laughs> all right, well, all this good news leads us into how we should respond and live in light of it, which brings us to Peter's second point in verses 5 to 10. Since we're destined to leave corruption behind and to participate in the divine nature, Peter exhorts us to get busy moving the football down the field in that direction. In fact, he urges us in verse 5 to make every effort. Make every effort to grow mature, or to grow and mature morally and spiritually. Now, one of the best... Writers today on the topic of spiritual growth is Dallas Willard. And Willard makes the point that some Christians mistakenly think that because we're saved by grace, effort is a bad thing. In fact, some of these Christians are afraid of effort. Because doesn't effort mean that we're trying to be acceptable to God by what we do, by our works, instead of by what God has done, by God's grace? If, if God has freely and graciously forgiven our sin and reconciled us to himself through Christ, some Christian's reason, shouldn't we show our faith in this fact by not trying to do anything to make ourselves acceptable? Are you following how people could reason this way? Well, Willard points out what a major fallacy this is and what a dangerous fallacy. He says simply, grace isn't opposed to effort, at all. What grace is opposed to is earning. Sure there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Christ has already earned it for us. We just receive that by faith. but God's great love moves us and inspires us to exert great effort to live up to all that God is is calling us to become. Are you following me as to the difference between earning and effort? Well, that's what Peter is getting at here. He, he inc- urges us to, to make great effort. Because God has been so gracious to us, because God has given us His own Son, because God has rescued us from corruption, because God has bestowed upon us everything we need to win the game, we should exert a lot of effort to get that ball into the end zone. So what does that look like? Well... When I was in the fourth grade, I began piano lessons. I took lessons for a year or two, and then I gave up. Since then, I've done a lot of other things. I ran cross country and track, I played soccer, I I took up the trumpet, then I took up the guitar. I went to college, I lived in Hungary, I lived in Washington, DC, then in Canada, now in New York. Along the way, I got married. I had four kids, I got a graduate degree, But I haven't devoted much time to the piano, and my playing shows. (laughs) But do you know, when I began playing the piano in fourth grade, there were other kids beginning, too. Most of them dropped out like I did, but some of them have stuck with it ever since. Day by day, year after year, all this time, they've, they've still been practicing. They've still been growing in their abilities. And do you know how their piano playing compares to mine today? There's no comparison. (laughs) Take Rachel's playing this morning, for instance. Isn't she great? That's the fruit of keeping at it. That's the fruit of making every effort. It's like that with a lot of things. It's like that with football or with any sport. It's like that with art and with dancing. It's like that, most importantly, with our spiritual growth. When we make every effort every day to stretch and to grow, it may not seem like much at the moment, but day by day, week by week, year by year, eventually we wind up yards and yards further down the field. We're down here and and the people who gave up years ago are still back there where I am with my piano playing. Are you still growing? Are you still making every effort? Or have you stalled somewhere along the way? You've been given so much grace. You've been picked for the team. The owner of the team has invested so much in you. Do something with it. Make every effort to win the game. The word Peter uses... For how we do this in verse 5 is the word add, which is a pretty bland translation. He says, add to your faith goodness. The Greek word here has a very vivid meaning, actually. It, It can also be translated supply or furnish or equip or provide at one's own expense. Literally, it means to lead a chorus, which seems strange. But the background of this word is the ancient Greek plays like those of Sophocles. If you remember studying any of these in English class, you might remember that there's a part for the chorus in these plays. One actor will speak, then another actor will speak, and then the chorus will chime in and say something. William Barclay explains these Greek plays needed large choruses and were therefore very expensive to produce. In the great days of Athens, there were public-spirited citizens who voluntarily took on the duty at their own expense of collecting, maintaining, training, and equipping such choruses, thus our word, to lead a chorus. Barclay goes on that a city might produce a dozen uh, plays like this each year for its religious festivals, and wealthy patrons who loved their city and had the money would fund the choruses for each one. To the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. So Barclay continues about our word. The word has a certain lavishness in it. It never means to equip in any cheese pairing or miserly way. It means lavishly to pour out everything that is necessary for a noble performance. So Peter urges his people to equip their lives with every virtue. And that equipment must not be simply a necessary minimum, but lavish and generous. The very word is an incitement to be content with nothing less than the loveliest and most splendid life. All right, well, let's look at the virtues themselves that we're to equip ourselves lavishly with. One thing we need to know about ladders of virtue, like the one Peter gives us here, is that they weren't meant to be taken in strict, strictly logical order. In other words, don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out how faith leads to goodness and goodness leads to knowledge. Usually only the first virtue and the last virtue were put there intentionally. All the ones in between are more or less in random order. So we begin with faith and we end with love. And everything in between just gets us down the football field, so to speak. We begin with faith. Spiritual growth depends on faith. It depends on trusting in God, on believing His great and precious promises, on tapping into all of the grace and all of the resources that He's bestowed upon us. We don't grow and mature in our own strength. I don't know if you've tried that. I've tried that. That doesn't get us very far. The righteous live by faith, step by step. And spiritual growth ends in love. Ultimately, that's the touchdown when we love like Jesus loved. Sacrificing, serving, giving ourselves, or I'm sorry, giving others our very best no matter what it costs us in the process. We begin with faith. We end in love. In between, we have goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness. Each of these deserves a sermon of its own. Peter urges us to lavishly supply our lives with each of these virtues. Because remember, God has bestowed on us through Jesus Christ everything we need to succeed. Well, what if we don't? What if we get distracted by all the other demands and opportunities of life like I did with the piano? What if we settle for where we are right now and we figure maybe we'll get back to it someday when we have more time? Well, Peter warns us of the consequences in verses 8 and 9. First, he says, we'll be ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of Jesus. In other words, if we're not growing, our relationship with Jesus won't mean a hill of beans. It will be pointless, useless, fruitless, worthless. Imagine our team makes it to the Super Bowl. And by halftime, we're behind 49-0. Not because the other team is better, but because our team isn't even trying. There's no hustle. On, on offense, the line isn't blocking. The receivers aren't fighting to get open. The, the running backs are taking the handoff and then just bracing for the tackle. On defense, the secondary isn't keeping up with the receivers. The, the other team fumbles, and, and they don't even try to recover it? It's like the whole first half, they just stood around with their hands in their pockets. As a fan of the team, how do you feel? Ugh. You want to yell at the TV? I mean, it's one thing if your team plays their heart out and gets beat, but it's another if they don't even try. What do you think the coach is going to say to them at halftime? A lot of things. He's going to remind them that the owner of the team has shelled out a lot of money, has equipped them with everything they need to win the game. And he's going to ask them in no uncertain terms if they showed up today to play football or not. Well, it's the same thing with our relationship with Jesus. Peter warns us that if we're not moving the ball down the field, if we're not growing in these virtues, then we're being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of Jesus, who's given us everything we need. Second, in verse 9, Peter says, if we aren't growing in our character and maturity, then we're nearsighted and blind, we're clueless. We haven't gotten the point of the game yet. It hasn't dawned on us yet why Jesus has saved us. We've forgotten, verse 9, that that Jesus has cleansed us from our past sins, Peter says. Why do you think Jesus cleansed us from our past sins? So we can go on living a life of sin now that we're a Christian? No. No. The whole point of salvation is that God loves us so much that He wants us to leave the sin mess behind so that we don't stay in the corruption of the world, but but so we can march down the field yard by yard until we reach the godliness and love of, of the divine enduring nature. But if we are marching down the field, Peter assures us in verse 10... That we're proved, or we're proving, that we are, in fact, those Jesus has saved. Those, as Peter puts it, that Jesus or God has called and elected. Those, in other words, that he's picked to be on his team. All right, well, this leads us very briefly to Peter's third point, verse 11. I realize in the NIV translation that a lot of us have. Verse 11 is the second half of a sentence, but in the Greek, it's a sentence of its own. It's Peter's third point. It reads literally, For thus, entrance will be richly supplied to you into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's that word again, supplied. The one about generously paying for a Greek chorus. Only this time, Peter has added the word richly in front of it, just to really up the ante. This is what we find in the end zone. When we've pressed down the field yard by yard, we've generously supplied virtue after virtue into our lives, we find in the end that God is ready to even more richly supply us with entrance into his eternal kingdom. The Hall of Fame. The Super Bowl victory party for champions. The ticker tape parade, the champagne. That's what God is doing. He's taking us, motley crew though we are, and He's forming us into spiritual champions people of faith, people of knowledge, people of goodness, people of self control, people of perseverance, people of godliness, people of brotherly and sisterly kindness. And above all, people of love. People fit to live and reign with him in his kingdom forever. Someone want to say amen? Amen. All right, here's the challenge. First, I want to point out that this spiritual growth business is a team sport. Every time Peter uses the pronoun you in this passage, it's in the plural. And our elders here at CBC have recognized that it would be very good for us as a church to be more intentional about growing spiritually together, of truly making it a team sport. Because our success or our failure as a church here ultimately depends on whether we're getting down the football field together. So, what's the plan? What's our playbook? How do we know if we're advancing? Well, our elders have been looking at some possible strategies that we could employ. And and the first step in any strategy is to develop a common team language. Every player on a football team has to learn the plays and the names of the plays so we all know what we're talking about. We've gotta be on the same page about how things work on this team. And so this Sunday and next, we want to introduce you to a couple of good playbooks for spiritual growth that that we could use. And my challenge to you, and I think it's God's challenge to us through this text of 2 Peter, is to take an active interest in what our elders are proposing. Ask questions, consider the implications, uh, consider how you might be involved, as our elders continue to figure out and as we figure out as a church how we can be more intentional together in helping one another to grow spiritually. Today, we want to introduce you to one playbook. It's called The 30 Core Competencies. Now, maybe one of you can come up with a more catchy name for it than that. Next week, we'll introduce you to another playbook called Life Shapes. And uh, in your bulletin on a green sheet, we've put a summary of both of these that you can look at between this week and next week. There's some extras on the table in the foyer too, if you don't have one to look at. All right, if we can have the next picture up here. I gave up art lessons about the time I gave up piano. (laughs) Today's playbook, The 30 Core Competencies, recognizes that when we grow spiritually, that growth happens in our heads, in our hearts, and in our hands. In other words, what we believe what we practice or do, and who we are, our characters, and our virtues. The 30 core competencies set out 10 basic beliefs that growing followers of Jesus believe, 10 basic practices that growing followers of Jesus do, and 10 basic virtues that growing followers of Jesus are coming to possess. Maybe we can have the next slide. There they are. Don't worry about memorizing them all right now. They're they're on your sheet to look at later. Last week, if you were here, I mentioned a national survey that George Gallup did, and we put the results in your bulletin. There's a few more out on the table as well. He was getting a national picture of where Americans are at in these 30 beliefs, practices, and virtues. And now it's our turn to take the survey both as an interesting way to get exposed to the 30 core competencies and also as a way of seeing what yard line we're currently on as a church. The survey is anonymous. No one will know what, you're, what you put down, so be as honest with yourself as you can. Uh, but next Sunday we'll have the group results to see um, how we did as a church, and we can even compare ourselves to Gallup's national results if we want to. And the survey asks 30 questions, each one of them tied to one of these 30 core competency here. Um, and you'll see when you look at the survey that it asks you to rank each question on a one to five scale. That it applies to you completely or it doesn't apply to you at all or somewhere in between. Then at the end, there's just a few demographic questions in case we wanna get fancy and stratify our results by gender or age or something like that. Um, please don't take these surveys home Um, we're gonna give you some time to do them here at the end of the service. That way we'll have time to collect them and and to get them all into the computer and tallied before next Sunday. Uh, When you're done, there's a basket out in the foyer where you can put them. The surveys are in your bulletins and I have some extras here as well. Um, I also have some pencils. I'll pass these around in just a second. Actually, I'll put the pencils up here I'll um, I'll put the surveys up here, too. Get one, if you want. Let's see if there's anything else. Uh, Let's actually close and say the benediction together. Um, And then you can do them at your own pace. Howard's gonna put some music on, and um, when you're finished, you can just put them in the basket. So, um, let's say the benediction. You wanna stand? Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until that day when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God, who calls you, is faithful, and he will do this. Amen. Okay.